A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Stephen, and welcome to the New Statesman Monday interview. This week, we're joined by Duncan Weldon former economist at the TUC, economics editor at Newsnight, writer on economics at The Economist, and author of a new book, Muddling Through the History of the British Economy from the Start of the Industrial Revolution to the Present. He talks to us about, you guessed it, the British economy, the process of writing a book, and recommends some extra books you'd go away and read afterwards. One, one of the, the things which I think is, is interesting about politics generally, but obviously the debate about the economy, is this continual sense whenever you read a history book or a diary from the past, then very little is new under the sun, which, as I understand, is one of the, the themes of, of the book. Was there anything which should have surprised you in the other direction? Were there things that you kind of thought were big, significant changes that perhaps surprised you in the process of researching and writing the book? One of the things researching the book really brought home, and you know, I don't want to bang on about Brexit because there's already so much banging on about Brexit that goes on, but quite what a big moment it was when we left the European Union in terms of, you know, this was a, a huge, a huge part of our economic model for the best part of 40 years. And you just really can't find another example of a developed, rich, advanced economy leaving so deeply an integrated trade block. So I think actually we are in sort of, you know, new territory when it comes to re-establishing trade policy, rethinking how our economy works, having left the single market and the customs union. That is that is a new challenge. What do you think the kind of big recurrent themes are in terms of British economic policy, economic debates and its economic problems? There are certain topics that just come up and they come up again and again. They come up from sort of mid-Victorian times to present. One is this debate we were just touching on, really, this debate around economic openness versus sovereignty. And, you know, Britain's been through various cycles of globalisation and deglobalization, and never quite came to, came to an answer that it's totally comfortable with. Another one is, of course, the role of the City of London and the financial centre in Britain's economy. And there are times that we've celebrated success and there are times we've worried it's too globally focused. It's not doing enough to help British business and in particular British small and medium sized enterprises. There's the regional debate. You know, the regional debate's not new, but, you know, now we've got a government talking about levelling up. But, you know, that's far from new. Going back to at least the 1930s, we've got a huge amount of different sort of policy agendas to try and level up, as we now call it, or narrow regional gaps in the UK economy. And then finally, I would say, you know, there's a long running debate, which we're having again now 
about vocational and technical education in Britain. And, you know, is, is our education system producing the right kind of skills? But these are all these are all quite old debates and they're and they're cyclical. You know, I mean, what, what is interesting to me is in periods when the British economy appears to be doing quite well, whether that's, you know, sort of the mid 1990s until the financial crash or whether that's in sort of the 1950s these debates tend to go away. When things seem to be working, we don't really question our economic model. It's only when we have problems that the debates, you know, come back again. Did this process, the process of writing make you sort of feel, because oh, yeah, as we talk about, right, these these debates are all recurrent. We at the moment are kind of at sort of that point in the cycle still where we have a, well, that's we have a new government. We have a new old government, right? This thing which has been in power for 10 years, but it's acting like it's just arrived, in which they're kind of doing this sort of, well, we're going to fix this stuff the machine will work brilliantly because we're in charge of it now. Did the process of writing this book make you feel more fatalistic about, you know, efforts to rebalance the economy, the sort of various experiments that the government is embarked upon? I think it did make me, it did leave me feeling more fatalistic than I had. You know, just looking back over the last 200 years of British economic history, you know, I mean, you know, a central theme of the book is that political economy matters, that you can't understand politics without looking at the economy. And you can't understand the economy without looking at politics. You've got to look at the interrelationships between the two. But what's really quite striking is if you look back, you know, most governments have been sort of buffeted about by the economy. Very few prime ministers have been able to radically change the economy in a, in, in a way which outlasts their term in office. I mean, you know, if you look back over the last couple of centuries, I mean, you've, you've obviously got Margaret Thatcher. You've obviously got Clement Attlee. You've got Lloyd George to an extent. You've got you know, Robert Peel back in the 19th century and to an extent Gladstone. But you know, most prime ministers come in with these, and chancellors come in with these ambitious agendas, and very few are able to you know, meaningfully change the economic outlook, to change the way the economy functions. I guess the obvious follow-up question is, who are the exceptions to that rule? The first obvious exception. Now, you look back at the 19th century, you know, governments don't have an economic policy in as much as we would understand it now. You know, they, they have no conception of gross domestic product or the size of the economy, that sort of stuff. They have no idea, you know, the idea the government should be actively managing the business cycle and trying to avoid recessions is you know, alien to them. That's a, that's a 20th century construct. But Robert Peel, as Tory prime minister in the 1840s, radically changes Britain by you know being the prime minister under which we ditched the corn laws which were you know tariffs keeping out foreign grain and opening britain up to the world britain's proper unilateral embrace of free trade and it, you know it's a fantastically important political victory and it was such a political victory that just became the consensus position in British politics for the next 80 years. It was very, you know, the moment you started saying, actually, maybe we should have tariffs, you were regarded as some sort of, you know, lunatic. This this, this was the model for Britain. That was a political victory, which embedded free trade in Britain. I think you go forward to Lloyd George in his time as Chancellor before the First World War, and then as Prime Minister during the war and afterwards, you get a huge change in the nature of the British state in the Edwardian period into the 1910s, the early 1920s. You know, until then, the British state had really been about fighting wars and paying for the debts incurred previously fighting wars. I mean, that, that, that's what the state did. It did a few small functions here and there, but most of government spending was primarily on this sort of defence and imperial idea. And Lloyd George and the New Liberals in general you know, start to change the conception 
of what the state was about. So I think a very, very nascent welfare state, things like old age pensions, things like unemployment insurance. You know, this was about saying, you know, the state has a role in economic life and the state can provide some services, which previously, you know, there was no idea in Britain that the state could provide. And just as importantly, that the state could pay for those services through progressive taxation with those who could bear more of the cost, bearing a proportionately higher share of the cost. That was a a radical break, not just in British political history, but in the history of the Liberal Party. You know, under Gladstone, you know, the the state was meant to be a a neutral economic actor, that if you were increasing taxes on farmers, you would also increase taxes on industrialists, that the state shouldn't be about redistributing income. So Lloyd George really starts to give us a more modern conception in sort of economic policy terms of what the state can do. And then we've got the the later 20th century examples of Attlee and Thatcher. Do you see, yeah, obviously no, very few politicians get into politics going, I'm going to be a non-transformative politician and even fewer prime ministers. Do you think there is something which connects Peel, Lloyd George, Attlee, Thatcher, or are they just about what goes on in their times? I think each of them in their own ways is a, is, is a product of their time. You know, I think I think that's really important. You know, so we op- I open the book by saying, you know, talking about this idea of path dependency, which I think is the most important idea in the book. And path dependency is really straightforward. It's the idea that how you got somewhere matters as much as where you are. So, you know, it, it's it's the old joke of a person, you know, a tourist asking someone for directions and the person saying, telling the tourist, if I was you, I wouldn't start from here. You know, politicians, that 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 is useless advice but it's often ignored. Politicians you know, inherit an economy in a certain place. And where, how the economy got to that place really matters. It constrains the choices available to them. You know, if you look at the two 20th century examples, the ones people are familiar with, you know, would Attlee have achieved the sweeping changes he affected had he taken over at a time other than 1945? You know, it matters that Clement Attlee comes to power at the end of a total war when we've just had a you know, war economy, essentially a state-run war effort. Um, so, you know, the apparatus to do what Attlee wants to do is there. There's a real-world example of it being done for the past few years. And he's also got, you know, the example of the 1920s and the 1930s. And, you know, saying the last time we fought a total war and then we demobilised, we had these two disastrous decades, no return to that. It was a particular historical moment, and he was able to um, do what he did in that historical moment. The same with Margaret Thatcher, you know, coming to power in 79, saying we need to reverse this post-war consensus model. You know, Ted Heath had tried something similar in 1970. If you look at Ted Heath's manifesto in 1970, what was sometimes called the Selsden programme after the hotel where the shadow cabinet went to meet, this was quite a radical reforming agenda of a smaller state, of cutting taxes, of a bit of privatisation, of rolling back union power. But we don't talk about people being Heathites, we talk about them being Thatcherites, because Heath wasn't able to affect his reforms, whereas Margaret Thatcher was. Why was that? I think one reason is because Thatcher came to power seven years later. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, you know, the 1970s were seen as this calamitous, turbulent time for the British economy. And that, you know, had many problems, but it created the political space in which Margaret Thatcher could act. And, you know, Thatcher could also point back at the supposed failings of the Heath government, at Heath's famous U-turn when he abandoned his programme and doubled down on Keynesian demand management and said that was a disaster. You know, like Attlee, 
she was a product of her times, but you know, again, like Attlee, she was a very skilled politician, able to you know use this window of opportunity she had to affect changes. I think you know another thing, another theme of the book, which I think is interesting, there is that I think politicians generally overestimate what they can achieve in the short term, but they often underestimate what they can achieve in the longer term. So you know. There's only so much change you can affect in one budget or even one, you know, or even two or three budgets. But slowly but surely, over five, six, seven, eight years in office, you can really start to, you know, shunt the economy down a particular path. And it may not be apparent until 10 or 15 years after you've left office what you've achieved. But it's that long term change is something politicians find easier to achieve, even if they don't appreciate it, than immediate short term effects. It's odd that because... Obviously, as you say, there's no such thing as a Heathite. But the weird thing is, is the most, in some ways, one of the most influential prime ministers in terms of our economy, right, surely is Ted Heath, because he is the one who actually, you know, got us into the European project. How much do you think sort of, you know, we as a result will look back on Boris Johnson as a, you know, do you think he's kind of already, you know, kind of actually in many ways, anything he does in office is kind of, sort of irrelevant to the fact of winning in 2019 and what that meant for our institutional relationship with the EU. I think you're probably right. And, it's, you know, Heath's a really good example there on that long-term change. So, yes, you know, we enter what was then the European Economic Community in the early 1970s, but you don't really start to see the impact of that on the economy until the at least the mid-1980s. These things take a long time. I mean, one, one argument I find fascinating, I think is not only fascinating, but it's also true, is if you look at sort of the reversal of Britain's decline in productivity levels relative to Western Europe. You know, that you know, Britain Britain's income per head compared to Western Europe goes into this relative decline from sort of the 1950s until the 1980s. Then it's it's reversed in the 80s and the early 90s. You know, the the the, the common story is to attribute that to Thatcherism. To say this was about privatization, this was about deregulating the labor market, this was about breaking union power, this was about lower taxes. Now, all of those things did have an impact on productivity, but I think that impact was probably dwarfed by the impact of joining the then European economic community, of getting a bigger marketplace for British exporters, of exposing British firms to more direct competitive pressure. So, you know, again, so it's a long-term impact of the Heath government, which tends to get attributed to Margaret Thatcher rather than the European Union. So in that spirit, given that there is a strong case that it was European Union membership, which played a large part in reversing Britain's relative economic decline, then yes, you know, Boris Johnson is a is a consequential prime minister for Brexit. We, you know, that's before we get into... I'm certainly not trying to blame him for it, but that's before you get into him being the prime minister during the you know deepest recession since the 1920s as well as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, I wanted to get onto the deepest uh, recession since the 1920s, which is, um, as you say, right, deepest recession since the 1970s, but due to government policy here and across large chunks of, of the world, one in which incomes have been more protected. Now, of course, the present chancellor, Rishi Sunak, is kind of desperate for this not to be a a one-off moment. Yeah, I uh, interviewed Keir Starmer fairly recently, and he kind of keeps talking about this moment as a 1945 moment. Now, obviously, the history of Labour leaders who believe that they're in 1945 moments before it turns out they're actually in 1992 or 2015 or 2019 moments is quite long. You make that made that point earlier about Attlee coming to power in the state of total war, yeah, an economy then yeah, a state which has just done different things. 
Do you think that we are likely to see very different expectations about both from voters and indeed from government about what they can do in recession because of what they have done in this one? I think absolutely. I think so. I think the furlough scheme. So the furlough scheme is fascinating. So, yes, you know, if you talk, if you talk to the Treasury, they say the furlough scheme was unique. It was special. You know, we've never had a recession before, which has been caused by the government telling people stay at home as much as possible, close your businesses. And we had to step in. So, yes, you get an unusually deep and fast recession, but you also get, yes, as you said, you know, a recession in which the government bears an unusual share of the cost. So, you know, what it shows up in government debt to GDP jumping to 100% rather than in falling incomes or rising unemployment. You know, it's amazing that unemployment's been contained you know, around the 5% mark, given the recession we had. But yes, I think having demonstrated that the government has the power to launch furlough type schemes, I think the pressure is going to be there for this not to be one off, for this to be part of the economic policy toolkit in the future. I mean, if you zoom forward five years, if we assume, you know, for whatever reason, there is a recession in the mid 2020s, and unemployment starts to rise, I think the political pressure on the Treasury to do something like a furlough type scheme will be very high. And I think whereas governments could previously, you know, there's always been a, a cost to rising unemployment, but whereas governments could previously have said, look, rising unemployment, it's really painful, but it's because there's a recession, there's nothing we can do. Because they've demonstrated there is something they can do, you know, the pressure is going to be there for it to, to, to do it again. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Don't forget to listen to our bonus podcast series, Westminster Reimagined with Armando Iannucci. You can get it in this podcast feed. Don't forget, you can now listen to our special Germany Elects podcast series, which explores the campaign, the runners and riders, and the big issues ahead of Germany's election on September 26th. Available now on the World Review podcast feed and at newstatesman.com slash Germany. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Yeah, this is a very self-indulgent question, actually. But I, I'm, I'm always sort of in awe when people kind of go, oh, I, I'm going to write a book. You know, you've suddenly got to like live with this thing. And I feel whenever I profile a politician, I really start to hate them by the end. There always comes to a period when I start to dream about them and I just resent their presence in my brain. And yet people write books and, and don't, you know, murder their relatives or pets. 
How did you stay sane during the process of writing this book? Yeah, I'm not sure I did, to be honest. You know, there, there was an awful lot of reading, an awful lot of writing, as you can imagine. I mean, the, you know, the final shape of the book is not quite what I originally intended. I mean, I thought it would have a bit less on the 19th century, a bit more on the 20th. But then I sort of, you know, fell into a hole of finding the 19th century much more fascinating than I'd imagined. And my my editor and my agent, my publisher, are all quite indulgent of that. Writing a book, I think, is a bit like having a child in that, you know, because nature wants us to have more children, there are certain bits of it you just forget. So, you know, I've, I've now, you know, I've got an eight-year-old and I've got a six-year-old and I've got a 10-month-year-old. And the 10-month-year-old, those first few months are much harder than I remember it being the first two times because there's been a gap and because your brain has, you know, sort of hidden away those memories of how terrible some of the early bits are, how hard, I should say, some of the early bits are. But I think, you know, writing a book is quite similar in that I'm sure if you'd asked me just as I finished, would you ever be tempted to write another book? I'd have said, no, I'm never writing another book. And here we are about a year or so after I finished and I'm thinking, yeah, maybe maybe I'd like to write another one. Thanks very much for coming on. Obviously, the first book everyone should go out and, and, and buy after listening to this is Muddling Through. But what would the what should the next three books that our listeners should should go out and 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 and, and get for themselves or get from their local library? Fantastic. So I think if you wanted three more books on sort of British economic and political history and political economy, I mean I'd say the best place to start is still Peter Clark's Hope and Glory on the twentieth century and David Canadine's Victoria's Century on the 19th century, two volumes of the Penguin history. Fantastic, you know, conventional history, political and economic history of Britain, um, covering all of the ground. And then they should read David Egerton's The Rise and Fall of the British Nation, in which David patiently explains why all of these conventional ideas are in fact wrong in a very entertaining way. You've been listening to the Newstapes Monday interview with me, Stephen Bush, and our guest, Duncan Weldon. Our music is Devil by the Devil, which is licensed under Creative Commons, and we're produced by Adrian Bradley. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.